Last week, we began our series by taking an in-depth look at the history of Christmas. Admittedly, it was an interesting place to start. It was a bit of a different type of Bible study, if you could really even call it that. But it really does set the context for the rest of what we're going to be examining. Last week, in addressing the history of Christmas, we reached two basic conclusions. As Americans, we should enjoy this distinctly American tradition, and as Christians, we should use the opportunity to prioritize Christ by teaching our children the story of the birth of Jesus and to show generosity to those in need. Now, over the coming weeks... We're going to be continuing our series by examining those that were involved in this incredible Christmas drama. We'll look at the main characters. We'll look at the supporting cast. And then we'll discuss the implications of Christmas before looking at the new day that follows the new year. This morning, we're going to be looking at the significance of the Christmas story. The significance of the Christmas story. That's the title of this morning's message. In many ways, whether by accident or by intention, Christmas tradition has become characterized by its unapologetic desire to claim the impossible as truth. Have you noticed that about Christmas? That Christmas has all of these claims that we want to communicate are real, but are extremely far-fetched. For example, Santa Claus, a diabetic fat man with an insatiable appetite for milk and cookies who lives with his wife year-round at the North Pole, is an impossible claim. I mean, overlooking so many of the realities living at the North Pole would bring during winter, do you realize the average temperature ranges between negative 45 degrees and negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit? It's an impossible claim. One elven workshop that manufactures toys for the world's children being buried beneath this frozen tundra is also an impossible claim. Everyone knows that elves don't live at the North Pole. Elves live in the Middle Earth outpost known as Rivendell. Okay, that was a Lord of the Rings joke. Saint Nick, possessing omniscient knowledge of who's naughty and nice, and then custom tailoring rewards based upon that judgment is an impossible claim. Haven't we learned that only Google has that kind of intrusion into our lives? One man flawlessly distributing gifts and one night to the world's 7 billion residents is an impossible claim. The best you're going to find this time of the year is Amazon Prime that guarantees two-day delivery. It's impossible. Reindeers flying or possessing red translucent noses that can illuminate the night sky to my estimation, is an impossible claim. Now, I wasn't 100% sure on that to start with, but after an extended search on Bing, I was left with no doubt that reindeers do not mutate in such a way. Mistletoe, providing this supernatural force field by which a woman will surrender all willpower and be magically compelled to kiss a man regardless of looks or breath, is an impossible claim. Think about it. If mistletoe really had this effect, it would be the hottest new fad among middle school boys and 40-year-old single men year-round. Impossible. I could go on and on. Christmas is full of these impossible claims. But the one impossible claim 
that Christmas makes that really takes the cake is the notion that little over 2,000 years ago, a virgin supernaturally conceived and bore the Son of God. If you really think about it, that is an impossible claim indeed. I mean, when was the last time you can recall a woman becoming pregnant without knowing a man or becoming intimately familiar with a test tube? It just doesn't happen. And yet, as impossible a claim as the virgin birth of Jesus might appear to be, what's mind-boggling is that Christians not only believe this impossibility became a reality, but we've gone so far as to establish our entire faith upon it. You might say that Christians have bet the house on the virgin birth of Jesus being an actual, historical, literal event. Please understand, if the virgin birth did not happen, and Jesus was a man no different from you and I, you can go ahead and call the fight, you can close up shop, you can move on to something else, Sundays do not need to compete with football if Jesus was not born of a virgin. One author said it well. Without the incarnation, Christianity isn't even a very good story. And most sadly, it means nothing. This morning, we're going to begin by analyzing the biblical claim of the virgin birth. Does the Bible really make such an outlandish claim? Then we're going to build the case for the historical validity of the virgin birth before we conclude by discussing the significance of the virgin birth of Jesus and what it has for all mankind. Let's begin first by analyzing the biblical claim that a virgin conceived. The first point that you should familiarize yourself with is the reality that the Bible clearly states Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, now you might think, does act. I, I get that. Not all Christians actually hold to that notion, but the Bible communicates, it states that Jesus was born of a virgin. Let's kick off this morning by reading the backstory of Christmas, provided first in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, and then continued in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. We're going to start in Luke 1, then we'll flip to Matthew 1. We read, verse 26 of Luke chapter 1, that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel said to her, answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born 
will be called the Son of God. Now flip to Matthew chapter 1. We'll continue kind of the backstory here. Because we're told in verse 18 that the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now Joseph, being a just man, her husband, not wanting to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And Matthew quotes here Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. It is undeniable, from a literal simplified reading of the historical text, the story provided by both Luke and Matthew, what is being communicated. Three basic things are being communicated, and it's very hard to debate them. First, though she's betrothed to Joseph, Mary was a virgin. Now, there are two proofs to this. First, both authors describe Mary as a virgin. Within the record, you will note on three occasions, Mary is described as being a virgin. It is clear that both authors wanted to communicate to the reader, to you and I, that Mary has not known a man. She has not had sexual intercourse with Joseph or anyone else at this point in her life. The second proof is provided through Mary's own confirmation of her virginity. The angel comes to Mary breaks the news, she's going to conceive, she's going to have a son, Mary's contemplating these things. What's Mary's question? It's, it's, very, it's very informative. She says, how can these things be? Why? Because I have not known a man. Mary confirms through her question her virginity. I'm going to be pregnant, but I'm a virgin. You're going to have to elaborate, Mr. Angel, and explain how that happens. And so we know, to begin with, from the passage, the author describes Mary in three occasions as a virgin. Mary affirms her own virginity through her response to the angel. The second thing we know from a very literal, simplified reading is that Mary's pregnancy would be different. It would be supernatural. In Luke's account, the angel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. In Matthew's account, the angel through a dream communicates to Joseph, for that which is conceived in her, speaking of Mary, is of the Holy Spirit. Though we do not know the specifics of how this happened, how this miracle took place, both passages are clear that God supernaturally fertilized an egg within Mary to form a living embryo. You might say that human DNA was fused together with divine DNA to produce a unique genetic code and the person of Jesus. The third thing we know from a simplified literal reading is that Mary's son, which he's to be named Jesus, would be God. Luke's account says that her son will be called the son of the highest. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever 
and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Some divine language being used here. Continues, therefore, the Holy One who is to be born will be called, what? The son of Joseph? No, the son of God. Matthew says that concerning her son, he will save his people from their sins. Only something God could do. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So the three things we get from the passage by just an elementary, like second grade reading level is that Mary was a virgin. That's easy. Her pregnancy would be of a supernatural origin. It would be unlike anything else. And thirdly, her son would be God. Now, though the text seems to leave little doubt, it should be noted that there are those who try to dismiss the divinity of Jesus by claiming the Bible never actually states Mary was a virgin. In my opinion, you have to go to great lengths to try to make this claim, but they do so by pointing out a discrepancy in Matthew's quote of Isaiah chapter 7. This quote, Isaiah 7, 14. They claim that when Isaiah says that, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, that Isaiah uses the Hebrew word Alma, which we translate into English as virgin. The critics claim that Alma should not be translated virgin, but should instead be translated into English as young maiden, indicating that Mary was young, but not necessarily a virgin. They claim that if Isaiah really wanted to communicate that the virgin would conceive, that he would have instead used a Hebrew word, Bethula, not Alma. Now, sadly, these educated naysayers overlook a few important details. First, though Alma can be translated young maiden, they're correct in that ass assessment. It is difficult to claim that Alma refers to someone or a young maiden who isn't a virgin. Ironically, not once do we find Alma being used to refer to a married woman or a non-virgin woman in the Hebrew Old Testament. Yes, it means young maiden, but it never refers to a young maiden who isn't a virgin. The assumption, the cultural assumption in Isaiah's day was that all young maidens were virgins. Secondly, these critics overlook several Old Testament passages that actually use Alma to refer to a young maiden virgin. Genesis 24, Exodus 2, Psalm 68, Proverbs 30, two times in the Song of Solomon, we find Alma being used in context to describe a virgin. Thirdly, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we know as the Septuagint, translated Isaiah chapter 7, they translated the word Alma from the Hebrew using the Greek word Parthenios, which in the Greek can only mean virgin. Now, what does that mean? That means that the Jewish translators, years before the advent, years before Christmas, in taking Isaiah 7 verse 14 and taking what Isaiah was communicating, these Jewish Hebrew scholars concluded that Alma should not be translated into the Greek as young virgin, as young maiden, but instead should be translated virgin using the word Parthenios. Fourth and finally, 
Luke. Luke wrote originally in the Greek. He didn't write in the Hebrew. And writing in the Greek, Luke, aside from Matthew's quote, Luke twice describes Mary as a virgin in chapter 1, verse 27. I don't know if you noticed that. And in describing Mary as a virgin, Luke uses in the Greek the word parthenios. Now, what does that mean? That means that if you just remove the quote of Isaiah 7, 14, you still have a rock-solid case that Mary was a virgin or Luke was a liar because you can't debate the meaning of the word parthenios. Understand, asserting the Bible does not present the virgin birth of Christ as factual, as literal and historical, is to be simply ignorant, dishonest, or disingenuous to the text. Though you can doubt the biblical claim of a virgin conceiving, that's well within your right, understand you cannot doubt that the Bible makes the claim a virgin indeed conceived. Our text is clear. The Bible's clear. Mary was a virgin betrothed to Joseph, whose pregnancy was a supernatural origin, meaning her son Jesus would be both God and man. Please note that New Testament doctrine further supports the claim of the virgin birth. Historically, the virgin birth of Jesus is known doctrinally as the incarnation of Christ. The term incarnation literally means to become flesh. It is the belief that Jesus, being the second person of the triune Godhead, became flesh, became man, by being conceived in the womb of a woman, the Virgin Mary. Doctrinally, the Bible, through several passages in the New Testament, teaches that the incarnation occurred when in the person of Jesus, the human nature of man, imparted through his mother Mary, was added to the divine nature of God produced from the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine known as the hypostatic union states that through the incarnation, Jesus, the man Jesus, was 100% God and 100% man. Understand the incarnation. The New Testament doesn't teach that, that Jesus was like half God and half man. No, the Bible teaches he's 100% God, 100% man. Now, though the Gospels record the event of the incarnation, you should note that the remainder of the New Testament writers build off the event to establish core theological doctrine. That's why at the beginning, I made it clear that at the incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus is not true. Then our faith is meaningless because we've based everything off of it. The New Testament has. By stating the incarnation or God becoming man as the only way in which God could save mankind from their sin, the New Testament authors further substantiate the biblical claim as the virgin birth being solid Christian doctrine. I'm just going to give you two passages real quick. Maybe you can jot them down and refer to them later on in your own study that kind of illustrate this notion. First, in John chapter 1, Verses 1 through 14, we're not going to read all of these verses. We're told that in the beginning, verse 1, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Logos. And then in verse 14, John tells us that the Word, what happened, the Word was God, became flesh, 
and dwelt among us, we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Once again, taking the idea of the incarnation and building upon it Christian doctrine. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 is another great example of this. I'll read it for you. Let this mind, Paul writing to the Philippians, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and then Paul gives us a description, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bod servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Our first phase in examining the significance of Christmas is that the Bible, without a doubt, claims that Jesus was born of a virgin. You can reject the Bible, go for it, but you can't reject that the Bible makes the case. A simplified reading makes it clear that the Bible communicates it. A more in-depth study reveals that the New Testament would be worthless without it by its own admission. The second thing now we should note with that in mind, continuing our train of thought, is that history validates the virgin birth. Please note that when trying to validate the veracity of a historical event like the virgin birth of Christ or the conquest of Alexander, when looking at an event in history and trying to validate whether or not it's true or false, myth or legend, trying to pull throughout the details to reach a good, like this is what happened. When historians do this, there are two ways that they approach reaching the validity of an event. First, they ask themselves the question, are there any ancient manuscripts documenting the claim? Like that's where they start. Understand that recorded eyewitness testimony from people who either witnessed the event or were directly involved in the event is the gold standard when pursuing ancient manuscripts. If I'm looking at an event in history and I'm wanting to know if it's fact or fiction, if there is eyewitness recorded documents that I can refer to, then the likelihood of that event occurring increases dramatically. Thus, if you're looking through antiquity and you find like the, the, the personal journals of some of the founding fathers or you want to reference the founding, like that's the way in which we're able to reach a conclusion that the historical event is actual. So we look at ancient documents, but we also ask this question, how quickly was the event accepted by society as factual history? Understand, the more time that transpired between the event occurring and the time in which the event was accepted as actual history, the more time that transpires between these two events, the more likely it was for a legend to sink in and distort the actual claim. So we look at ancient history, the documents, eyewitness testimony, that's, that's the best. And then we look at how long between the event happening and the event being accepted by society as history, how long did the two things happen? Because that also indicates how factual the event is. Now with that in mind, and examining the his, historical validity of the virgin birth, we should note that the amount of reliable ancient manuscripts documenting this claim as factual history is utterly astounding. Both Matthew and Luke 
These men were educated, and they were meticulous in recording their biographies of Jesus' life with this in mind. Luke and Matthew wanted their record to be able to withstand the scrutiny of a court of law. They wanted people to read what they wrote about Jesus and accept it as fact, as history. The virgin birth is no exception. To deny the virgin birth as a fact of history, you should note, would be to deny solid history. We're not going to elaborate in great detail, but I want to give you a quote by Norman Geisler, who's a great Christian thinker. He put it this way, there are more eyewitness contemporary records of the virgin birth than for most events found in ancient history. Thus, there is no reason to believe Jesus was not literally born of a virgin, just as the Bible claims he was. In other words, if you question the historical nature of the virgin birth, then you need to remain consistent by questioning virtually every other claim presented in world history. You should doubt Alexander existed. You should question Napoleon's conquests. Anything dealing with uh, Asian antiquity, you should reject as mythology. There's more evidence documenting the virgin birth than any of those things. A vast majority. So we should accept it as history. Documents exist proving the claim. The second thing is that in regards to the historical validity of the virgin birth, beginning with the first generation of Christians, the church has universally accepted this event as a historical fact. No time existed between the event occurring and it being accepted as factual, even to the point that some of the eyewitnesses of the event went into Bethlehem, the shepherds, doing what? Proclaiming that the Messiah had come. The Apostles' Creed, which was thought of as the summary of the apostles' teaching, stated, and I quote, that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed, written in 325 AD, stated that, quote, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Westminster Confession, written in 1647 AD, stated that Jesus was, quote, conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It has always been accepted as Christian doctrine, the historical accuracy of the virgin birth. Since our account was provided by contemporaries of the event itself, there was no time for legend or oral tradition to distort the record. Once again, it should be noted, though, that not everyone accepts this. There are and has been throughout the church naysayers. There have been liberal factions who have attempted to deny the virgin birth and minimize its importance. Those that reject the virgin birth, aside from their attack on scripture, they attack it in two ways. There are some that reject the virgin birth, reject the incarnation, because they really reject supernatural. There have always been those who have attempted to merge Christianity with naturalism. And to do this, they have tried to rid the Bible of impossible claims of supernatural events in order to make Christianity 
more friendly to the scientific mind, liberal scholars have attempted to rationalize the miraculous by trying to provide natural explanations. The Isaiah 7 controversy, which we've already addressed, arose as an attempt to rethink the biblical notion of a virgin conceiving. But understand, the heretical attempt to remove miracles from the Bible has never gained popular traction in Christian circles. Why? Because it's indefensible. Like, it's hard to go through the Bible and just rip out mentions of the supernatural and be left with anything looking like the Bible. There's an element to our faith that demands our acceptance of the supernatural, but understand, it is completely logical and rational to do so. Simply stated, if a theistic God exists, then miracles are automatically possible. If a supernatural God exists that can act, then it becomes completely logical and rational to conclude there can be supernatural acts of God. If God transcends nature and by that is supernatural, then how would you describe the actions of a supernatural God as being supernatural? And so understand, though this is an attack that's often levied at Christianity, it's completely rational to accept the miraculous. If Jesus made an eyeball, then I think he knows how he can fix it. If Jesus spoke all things into existence when nothing existed, then I think it's rational to conclude that the Holy Spirit could overshadow Mary and life could be given. There are also those, though, who reject the incarnation because they reject the infallibility of Scripture. Since it's difficult to deny the Bible's affirmation of the virgin birth, some have circumvented the issue by attacking the credibility of the Bible itself. Now, this is why I want to get into this for a moment, because there are those who theorize that the Gospels, that the Gospels were not actually written by Matthew or Luke or John or whatnot, that they were written instead at a much later date. These Christian scholars believe that the incarnation was added later to the text for two reasons. First, it added more mystique to the legend of Jesus. Him claiming to be God, being born of a virgin, made sense, so they introduced it later. But they also introduced the, virginity, uh, the virgin birth of Jesus, the virginity of Mary, as an idea to make Christianity more appealing to Greek and Roman cults who had already accepted in the second century the concept of the virgin birth and their popular mythology. Now, though this heresy has reared its ugly head at various points in church history only to rescind back off the stage into the pit of hell where it originated, the attack on the virgin birth has recently reemerged in this way. And this is why we're bringing it up, through the teachings of Zondervan's provocateur author, Rob Bell. In addition to questioning the infallibility of Scripture, pastor, teacher, author, accepted Christian leader, Rob Bell, in his first book, Velvet Elvis, he calls into question the virgin birth of Christ 
And he seems to indicate, or at least imply, that the incarnation is not even that important to Christianity anyway. Let me quote. Bell writes, What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real, earthly, biological father named Larry? By the way, if that were to be the case, Larry's a horrible name to just like kind of throw in there with that. That's not even first century accurate. But let's just say they had a biological father named Larry, and archaeologists, Bell writes, find Larry's tomb. And they do DNA samples. And they prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in. Now he continues to introduce the Greek and Roman cults and he throws in the notion of a virgin, not really meaning a virgin, but you instead, I I skip all that. Because he continues, he says, what if, after he builds his case, as you study the word virgin, you discover the word virgin actually comes from the book of Isaiah. When you find out in the Hebrew language, it, it could mean something else, not necessarily virgin. He says, could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is there a way of Jesus that is still possible for us to live out? Or does the whole thing fall apart? He, he throw, like, do we really need to accept the notion of this impossible claim of a virgin conceiving? Like, can't we still be Christians even if Jesus's dad was named Larry? This is Bell's hypothesis. This is what he expounds upon. Now, we've already addressed the Isaiah 7 controversy, but I want to take a moment and just combat the notion of mythology being the reason we have the incarnation using just four quick points. First, today, the second century dating theories have been thoroughly discredited by archaeology and manuscriptal evidence. The New Testament was written, and there's ample proof by contemporaries and eyewitnesses of the events themselves, and therefore, there was no time for mythological elements or legend to be developed. It's, it's, it's simply inaccurate. Secondly, because the person, person's places and events of Christ's birth are so precise and historically substantiated, they don't show any of the standard literary marks of the mythological genre. I heard it stated that if the incarnation was patterned off of traditional mythology, then you can accurately state it was a poor attempt. It's not even consistent. Thirdly, since the Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic, there is zero, zip, zilch, nada, no mythology that even remotely corresponds to the literal incarnation of a monotheistic God in human form by way of a virgin birth. There simply exists no precedent for correlating the two. And finally, and I think this is most interesting, the stories of Greek and Roman gods becoming human via miraculous events like a virgin birth, do you realize they actually post-date the time of Christ. Now what that means is that if there's any influence between mythology and Christianity, it's not mythology on Christianity, but rather Christianity on mythology. It's the reverse. Now in the specific case of Rob Bell and his notion that the incarnation has little effect on Christianity, 
I'm just going to let G. Campbell Morgan uh, lower the boom. He says, if Christ is only a man, then I am an idolater. If he is very God, then the man who denies it is a blasphemer. There can be no union between those who hold his deity and those who deny it. If you read Rob Bell's books, just know you're reading a heretic. Now, in regards to the case for the historical validity of the virgin birth, the church has not only universally accepted the incarnation as historical fact, but the amount of ancient manuscripts documenting this claim as verifiable history is overwhelming. So in conclusion, let's finally discuss the significance the virgin birth has for all mankind, but really specifically for you and for I. The incarnation of Jesus is significant for two reasons, two fundamental reasons laid out in the text we look at. First, the incarnation establishes Jesus as the Son of God. That's the first significant reason the virgin birth is important or that Christmas is important. We're told that, behold, the virgins shall be with child, shall bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So first, it's significant because it establishes Jesus as the Son of God. But also note, the incarnation is significant because it provides humanity a perfect sacrifice by which atonement could be offered for the sins of the world. I think one of the most amazing, relevant, exciting phrases and the angel's declaration of what was taking place was found when the angel tells Joseph this, and Mary shall bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus. Why, he says, for he will save his people from their sins. The significance of Christmas, it all boils down to the reality that Jesus came to save humanity from their sins. Please understand that if Jesus had not been born of a virgin and was instead, as Bell speculates, was born the bastard child of some unknown man, Mary was able to successfully conceal, we would be able to say with complete certainty that Jesus' claim to be God was bogus. We can also say with certainty that his promise to save humanity, to save me, to save you from our sins, would also be tragically inaccurate. Though Jesus, without the virgin birth, the incarnation, though Jesus could have still been a great moral philosopher or teacher, without the virgin birth, he would have been a normal man, unable to save even himself, from his sin. But, and this is what's glorious, if the incarnation is true, if this happened, if a virgin conceived and bore a son, if that's true, it establishes the life of Jesus as the supernatural intervention of God seeking to save me from my sin. That's radical. Since Adam sinned in the garden, sinned against God, 
Falling short of God's perfect standard, mankind has been left with only one of two options to remedy his sin. Man can either atone for sin himself or he could provide a sacrificial substitute to atone for his sin on his behalf. But the limitations to both options have always been glaring. Because of man's continual sinful state, a sacrificial substitute offered to atone for sin, understand it could only provide a temporary reprieve. Offer sacrificings to atone for sin, it could never be permanent. Since an imperfect man would have to spend an eternity paying off a perfect debt, permanent atonement or the complete satisfying of man's debt before God it has always proven to be unattainable. This is the dark background set to the manger scene. Man, unable to save himself of sin, unable to provide permanent atonement, separated from God, damned for eternity. That's the backdrop, the dark sky above the manger. Logically, only a perfect man could satisfy man's perfect debt. Only a sinless man could permanently atone for man's sin as a sacrificial substitute. And with that in mind, the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, becomes fundamentally essential to the Christian doctrine of salvation. For the first time in Jesus, since the creation of Adam, a sinless man was born in the person of Jesus. As God, Jesus was sinless. As man, Jesus could represent humanity. The incarnation produced the perfect conditions for a permanent sacrifice to be offered to atone for the sins of mankind. When Jesus was born to Mary, it was now possible for a perfect man's sacrifice, a perfect man's sacrificial death, to once and for all be offered to provide permanent atonement. Basically, Jesus could satisfy the debt of sin. Above and beyond, every other meaning that one can draw from Christmas, and there are all kinds of meanings that you can draw, but, but the most important, the most significant, is that the birth of Jesus, it means something for one main overarching divine reason, that in laying aside the glory of heaven, by coming to this rotten, fallen, sinful planet as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, as God becoming man, Jesus came with a mission, an impossible mission, an awesome mission, a radical mission, a relevant mission, to save humanity from their sins. Jesus came to provide himself the perfect sacrifice for atonement. Let me summarize this morning's study in three, three phases, three phrases. First, the Bible claims the impossible as factual. It does. You can't run from it circumvent it, deny it, 
the Bible claims the impossible as factual. By analyzing the biblical claim of the virgin birth, it is undeniable. It is a reality that the Bible affirms that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and the New Testament further supports that claim through the doctrine it establishes. Secondly, history validates the improbable as actual. By building the case, the historical case, for the validity of the virgin birth, we see that the church has not blindly accepted this idea as truth, but there is a mountain of archeological and historical and manuscriptal evidence to make our belief in the virgin birth rational and logical and real. But thirdly, doctrine. Doctrine establishes the incredible as reality. The Bible claims the impossible is factual. History validates the improbable as actual. And doctrine establishes the incredible as reality. In discussing the significance of the virgin birth, that Jesus was God who had come to save man from their sins, we can reach the glorious conclusion that Jesus came to save me from my sins. When you look at the nativity this Christmas, when you see the babe and that manger, understand beyond everything else that that moment, that event, that situation it's significant for you for one main reason. If that didn't happen, you would be lost in your sins, lost in your trespasses, lost. I've heard it said, without the manger, you want to know the significance of the manger? Without the manger, there could never have been a cross. Cross. 